us this evening. You know, as a parent, I have struggled to find the balance between being the military father and the free-range parent. I mean, I never wanted to be the dad that was a ruthless dictator, that was always keeping an eye out on his kids to make sure that they crossed every T and dotted every I. I didn't want to be that dad that was so oppressive that it was not fun to be living in our household. But at the same time, I made fun of and mocked those folks who believed in permissiveness to a fault, who believed in just letting your kids find their own unique personality, having no boundaries or restrictions, just letting them experience life and learn for themselves, and I always thought those kids were brats, you know, so I didn't want that either. And so I struggled to find that balance between the two, and still struggle. I mean, sometimes wonder, am I doing any of this right? Have you ever noticed how we operate on those two ends of the spectrum when it comes to the religious stuff as well? We have names for them, don't we? You have legalistic and liberal. And, you know, on the legalistic end, we tend to define it by those who want to follow the rules, which is not an accurate definition. A lot of the times, the people that are using the term legalism or legalistic are people who have no clue what it means. It's not legalistic to want to do what God tells you to do. It's not legalism to say, I want to follow God's rules. That's not legalism. But then on the other side, there are those people who will call you liberal or label you as liberal because you don't believe like they do on every single point. And that's not what liberalism is either. You know, if you don't agree with me on everything, then you're liberal. No, that's, that's not right either. And what we do a lot of times is we say, well, I don't really like either one of those, but if I'm going to be one or the other, I want to be legalistic. Or if I'm going to trend or lean one way or the other, I want to lean towards legalism. You shouldn't. You shouldn't want to be either one of those because neither one of them are right. It shouldn't, you should be trending towards either one or leaning towards either one. At, at the end of the day, what you should want to be above all else is biblical. That should be the only label that you carry or that you wear because liberal and legalistic are often sliding terms. They're, they're subjective terms, and a lot of times the people that are using them don't know what they're talking about anyway. 
But wouldn't you agree that a lot of us, maybe even most of us in this auditorium, struggle with finding the balance between those two? You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times I find myself looking at religion, looking at Christianity and a relationship with God is performance-based. You know, if I just do all the right things, he's going to love me. And maybe that's just me, but a lot of times I look at it like, well, I didn't do well enough today, or I didn't do good enough today. But then there are times when I've also been guilty of maybe glossing over some teaching or maybe some doctrine with a justification for it, and, you know, that's not right either. And sometimes it's hard, and depending on what your upbringing was, maybe you swing the pendulum to the opposite side. If you grew up in a, in a, in a home or in a church that was very restrictive and very oppressive, you know, there's a tendency to swing the pendulum all the way to the other extreme, or vice versa. And you pass the truth in the middle somewhere. You know, I want you to keep all of that in mind as we go to the prophet Nahum. Think about striking that balance of being biblical, reasonable, and logical. Not legalistic, not liberal, but biblical. Nahum is a very short book, and it is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jonah, but Assyria was one of the great empires. They were violent, cruel, immoral people on a scale that had never been seen before, unprecedented in their immorality and their cruelty. They were powerful, and they were Israel's enemy. Now, remember, it was Jonah who was told by God to go and preach a message of repentance to Nineveh, and the people turned around, if you'll remember, Jonah wasn't happy about it, but the people did repent. Even their king repented, but that was like a hundred years ago, and apparently it didn't last, because now Nahum is sent on the scene, and his message to Assyria, to Nineveh, in essence is, I'm done with you. I've had enough, and you're going to go down, and you're going to go down in the worst way. Now, understand that when we look at the Bible, we're not looking at it from a, from a legalistic perspective or a liberal perspective. When we're looking at the Bible, we're looking at two things. There's two things that we need to discover. Who is God? And what is he trying to say? So if we're going to be biblical and avoid those two subjective terms, to be biblical means I've got to answer two questions. Who is God? And what is he trying to say? Not who do I want God to be? And what do I want him to say? But who is he and what is he actually saying? Because our conception of God can only come from what he has revealed in his word. That's the only way this works. This is not about what you think God to be. Or, or I, I feel that God is, I don't care what you feel. Who is God? And this whole business about just follow your heart, no, that didn't work. That's not what you're to do. You're to follow God as he's revealed himself in his word. So we need to know who God is and what is he trying to say. And so when we go to the prophets, especially as we're looking at tonight, Nahum, we're looking at what is God trying to say through this prophet, and what is the message that is being conveyed. Here's what we read, starting in verse 2 of Nahum chapter 1. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. 
The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm in his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Understand that Nahum might have been speaking these words with a little more boldness and a little more conviction than normal. I can imagine him speaking these words with a tone of contentment. Because do you realize who Assyria is in relation to Israel? They were the sworn enemy. It's kind of like in our day and time. If you watch sports, if you follow sports, and there's that one good team that wins all the time. You hate that team, don't you? Unless it's the St. Louis Cardinals or the Dallas Cowboys, you don't want a team that wins all the time. Or if that's... Maybe it's that one athlete that's really good. You know, a lot of people didn't like Michael Jordan. A lot of people don't like LeBron James simply because they're good, because they dominate, right? They're the best in their sport. We don't like the guy who wins all the time or the team that wins all the time, unless it's our guy or our team, right? And especially if they're cocky and they're arrogant, they're boastful, we really don't like that guy. We really don't like that team. And we can't wait to see them lose. It may be a while, but we can't wait to see them lose. And when they do lose, we almost gloat. We almost applaud because we like to see them defeated. That's Israel right now. They're looking at this message from Nahum. They're looking at what he is saying to Assyria and the, the, the judgment that he is pronouncing from God. And they're thinking about time. We get to see our enemy defeated. In verse 19, it says, There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? That's chapter 3, verse 19. I suspect that Nahum was a little bit proud to say those words. Maybe, maybe not. But a serious time is coming, and Israel would get to sit back and watch this all play out. The arrogant empire would suffer the most complete defeat. They hadn't lost much. They're like that undefeated team that nobody likes, but the defeat they're about to have is going to end their run, and it's going to end their reign, and it's going to be like nothing they've ever seen. Finally, they're getting what's coming to them, and it's going to be catastrophic. And if you go back to chapter 1 of Nahum, we see this prophet speaking of God's appearance. 
God is coming to confront the nations and rain down judgment and justice. And you'll notice that Nahum uses the description of God that's found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, a, a passage that we related uh, a couple of weeks ago in our Sunday morning series. I love this passage. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 reads, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. In other words, God has been more than patient. He has been long-suffering, and, and, and he has allowed a lot of evil to go unpunished, but not anymore. That long-suffering is running out. That fuse, that really long fuse, has been burned up. And so chapter 1 of Nahum is really a back and forth between the fate of the nations and the fate of God's faithful remnant. God's going to bring down the oppressive empires and provide refuge for those who humbly bow before him. And in verse 15, you'll notice that Nahum describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of the people. Now, something else that's interesting here is that nowhere in chapter 1 does Nahum even mention Nineveh. What's interesting is that with his references to Isaiah's words, we almost assume that he's talking about Babylon. The fall of Babylon, of course, would occur much later. But I think that what we gather from this and the key point that we should see is that chapter 1 is focusing on a God that avenges in every age. That the fall of Nineveh is merely an example of a God who will not let arrogant and oppressive empires go unpunished. Now chapter 2 refocuses on Assyria. The progressive stages of the overthrow of Nineveh are described here, which really culminates in verse 13. Notice it says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. How would you like to hear that message straight from God through a prophet? The Lord is against you. God forbid any of us ever hear that the Lord is against us. And then chapter 3 goes on to describe the impact of Nineveh's downfall on the Assyrian Empire as a whole. If you notice chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. And again, we see this theme of injustice. We've talked about it over and over again as we go through the minor prophets. This injustice that happens, and we see that God is, is, just, just despises this injustice that is happening. That people, his people, are being treated so unjustly as something that he can't take, that he can't overlook. But with the Assyrians, their, their injustice has sown the seed of destruction. And Nahum concludes with a taunting of the former king of Assyria. This king is stricken with a fatal wound. There is no one to come to his aid. And instead of assisting him, they sing and they celebrate over him. And that's really the final scene of the book. Is this king lying on the ground, mortally wounded, blood pooling around him, breathing his last breaths, and the people standing over him and clapping. 
cheering because he has died. So where's the application in this for us? Where is our story in this story? Well, if you look at verses 2 and 3 of Nahum chapter 1, it says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Does that sound like a God who says, just do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. I just want you to be happy. That's not the message we see conveyed by the prophet here. No, what we see is that God is a jealous God, that he is a, an avenging God, that he punishes his enemies. But he's also a God who's long-suffering. He's also a God who is patient. He's also a God who's not going to sit around and wait for you to mess up or try to catch you on a technicality so that he can strike you dead or bring down the hammer. There's a God here that is unitary in nature. He's not the grandpa that pats you on the head and tells you that's okay, just try harder next time. He's not the great cosmic therapist that's there just to affirm your feelings. But he's also not a God that is a ruthless dictator, that is an unfair and uncaring tyrant. He is a God that loves his people, that he loves his creation. He punishes the guilty. A holy God must do that. The Bible presents a God that is both and, if you want to describe it that way. He is an avenging God, and he is a merciful God. He is a compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but he also punishes the guilty. He is both a gracious God and a wrathful God. Here's how Peter presents this God. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. As we said this morning, God will love you all the way to hell. He doesn't revel in bringing people down. He doesn't enjoy watching you wallow in your sin. He loves you and he wants what's best for you. But he's not going to let the guilty go unpunished. Justice delayed is not justice denied. Retribution will be exacted at some point. So this both and God provided a way for sinners to be redeemed. He loves to forgive. That's what atonement's all about. It's about God satisfying his own requirements by providing the perfect sacrifice. Paul talks about this, 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Isn't that an amazing thing about God and His grace and His mercy and His love is that He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin, to meet the sacrifice that we so desperately needed and to be the atonement that we couldn't provide for ourselves. God is a holy God. And a holy God must punish sin. But our gracious and patient God is waiting and he's giving mankind the opportunity to turn from their sins and to be covered in the blood of an atoning sacrifice. In the end, no sin's going to go unpunished. 
just because someone is allowed to continue sinning during this life and maybe living to the ripe old age of 100 doesn't mean that in eternity God's going to forget or that on the day of judgment it won't be called into account. The God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love will not leave the guilty unpunished. No one gets off the hook. You see, there is a sense in which God might be defined as legalistic in this way. He has given us rules to follow. He has given us commands to heed, warnings to heed. He gave a law in the Old Testament. In John 14 and 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obviously, God puts boundaries in place for our own good. We need them. Because we can't operate on our own and expect to succeed. And any of you who have ever tried that know that to be the case. You don't know what's good for you. You don't know what's best for you. And the moment you think you do, you've come to realize, oh yeah, I don't really know what's best for me, right? So there is a sense in which someone might accuse God of being legalistic, although that wouldn't be the correct terminology necessarily. God has put rules in place, not so that he can catch us on a technicality, but because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. But then there's a sense in which God is liberal too, right? He's been more than gracious. I mean, more than we can ever imagine when it comes to the pouring out of his love and his generosity and his grace and his mercy. And his mercy. We, don't, we don't deserve the slightest measure of any of that. And yet our liberal God provides love and grace and mercy in abundance. Again, what, what does all of this have to do with us? Well, Nahum presents us with a God who wants what's best for his children, but not only his chosen people, he wants what's best for everyone. Everyone that was originally made in his image, even the ones who have turned their backs on him, even the Assyrians. Think about that for a moment, that God wanted the Assyrians in heaven, so much so that he sent a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah to go and preach to them. These evil, corrupt, awful, immoral individuals, God still wanted. He still wanted something to do with them. And Jonah, Jonah excuse me, knew that God was a both-and God. He knew that he was a God who waits, who is abounding in loving kindness, and, and who is patient and long-suffering. He knew that he was a God that was gracious and merciful and, and forgiving. But he also knew that he was a God that wouldn't let sin go unpunished, that at some point God would bring it all into uh, uh, destruction. And so Jonah, knowing that, ran from his responsibility. Because he didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wanted them to get what was coming to them. Remember what he said? Remember what he said after the Ninevites repented? Please, Lord, was, it, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah wanted no part of God's plan to save the Ninevites. Even though they repented, it wouldn't last. And Jonah presents the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger God 
And then Nahum presents the avenging God. The one who is going to bring all sin into account. And the one that's eventually going to make everyone pay. That's Nahum's message. It's, it's that other side of God, but they're really two sides of the same God. It's a both and God. They're two sides of the same coin. It's a, it's a unitary God. He's unitary in his character. He waited long enough to bring down the hammer. He was patient. He was long-suffering. He had that long fuse. But eventually, it was time to bring all of their sins into account. He gave them opportunity to turn around, to not be cruel and malicious and, and, and unjust and immoral. Some repented, but it didn't last, right? And the Lord, by no means, lets the guilty go unpunished. Here's the deal. And I think the message that Nahum is presenting to us is that our perception of God or the conception that we have of God needs to be a both and God. Because that's the way Scripture presents it. A holy God must punish sin. Because sin is diametrically opposed to everything that a holy God stands for. But, thanks be to God that He sent His only begotten Son to be the sacrifice that we so desperately needed. That is the gift of grace that is offered to everyone who will receive it. But you have to receive it. You can't expect to live your life in open defiance of God and get to the end and say, well, I was a pretty good guy. Sin must be punished by a holy God. And no sin will go unpunished. As I said a couple of weeks ago, somebody has to pay the price. Is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? That's really the choice you have. But God is not a legalistic God who sits up in heaven on his throne just waiting for you to mess up trying to catch you on a technicality so he can strike you with lightning. But he's also not a liberal God who just sits there and turns the other cheek while you do whatever you want to do. He's not a God that is loosey-goosey and just lets you do whatever with no kind of repercussions whatsoever. No, he is a gracious and loving God. He's also a God who punishes the wicked. He is a God that lets no sin go unpunished. And so I bring to you tonight the question that I brought to you a couple of weeks ago. Who's going to pay the price? Is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? And you have the opportunity tonight, if you're, if you're not a child of God, if, you, if you've not put on Christ in baptism and started that daily walk with God, you have the opportunity to do that tonight. I don't know why you would leave here tonight without being right with God, but please, don't leave tonight without being right with God. Accept the gracious, loving, merciful God's offer. And if you need to repent of something tonight, if you need, to, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, then let us help you. But folks, I'm reminded every day in my job of how fleeting life is because I deal with death over and over again. And how many times I have dealt with death in situations where I knew they were not a child of God. And they sat in pews like you did. They had every opportunity to make a change. And for whatever reason, they didn't. Don't be that person. Make a change if you need to tonight. Come now as we stand and as we sing.
for you and me.